Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It's 10.33 on Wall Street. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Max Neeson. He covers all things healthcare for us, and we love to have him on, particularly during this pandemic, because there's so many topics, there's so much breaking news. And Max, I want to start with the Sanofi news here. I guess the CEO came out yesterday and said that the U.S. would likely get first crack at their vaccine because the U.S. was first to step up with funding here, and now he's getting some pushback on that, including from uh, the president of, of France here. So give us the background here. How common is that in the world of healthcare and vaccines for one country to get preference over another? Uh, you know, it, it's not uncommon at all in the sense that you, you do see wealthier countries, um, countries that, that have a manufacturing base, um, do, do get access more rapidly. There, there was a a flu outbreak, the 2009 one, where where a lot of those vaccine stocks, which which didn't end up being super useful, were were bought up by by countries like the United States. This is a, a kind of particularly special and case where you know the United States, on one hand, is providing some some extra funding, build, helping uh, potentially to build some of that that at risk manufacturing capacity before we even know if the vaccine works. Um, but at the same time, the the furor that this this kind of prompted highlights that this is going to be a really complicated geopolitical issue, that there's such demand that, that giving countries preference is going to be incredibly controversial and difficult. And, and that you also, you know, you, if you politicize it, that, that has some risks. What if you have a situation where, where the vaccine that turns out to work best is, is one of the ones being developed in China, and they, they take the position that because they funded it, um, the, you know, that the United States should be last in the queue. So it's, it's a really risky path to step down um, to do anything but try to develop uh, maximum capacity and, and give it out um, to whatever extent possible based on need. Um, you know, the, the best situation is not having to, to ration doses out or, or give countries preference uh, based on their income level. Max, just zooming out a little bit, I mean, we're all hopeful for a vaccine and we can argue over who's going to get it first, but we still don't have any clarity of how long it is going to take. And the WHO, the World Health Organization yesterday, warned that it could take up to five years before the coronavirus pandemic is under control. I'm looking at more and more dire predictions of social distancing, distancing stretching out for a longer and longer period of time as we await some sort of treatment or vaccine. Where are we? How do we even judge that? Um, unfortunately, anyone that tells you that they have, you know, an accurate timeline is is making it up. You know, you okay. You, well, you make it up and know. make it good. Make it positive, so we can prepare to <laughs> I, leave I, our I, homes. I, you know, that, that's very much the temptation. But you also want to avoid giving the uh, the sense of false hope, because the the, the best way to proceed is is not in, in relationship to best-case scenario. It's the worst-case scenario where you have to use public health efforts, testing, tracking, tracing, um, screening to, to, to keep people safe until there's a vaccine, whether it's, you know, by the end of the year or well into next year. Um, it's just worth highlighting again that, that we're, we're working on, on an unprecedented timeline. Um, you know, it may well be that prior vaccine development efforts 
uh, were overcautious because, um, you know, we just weren't willing to throw enough resources at them or, or take enough risks and that, that you know, these, these rapid accelerations will prove successful. But, you know, it's not like it's a slow process on a whim. It's because if you're going to give something to billions of people, um, you know, a 1% serious side effect rate, that that's you know close to the estimated fatality rate of of the virus itself. You, you could be having a negative impact on on millions and millions of people. So you really do have to approach this cautiously. And, and there are a lot of things that can go wrong. It's not just about the safety. It's about can you actually produce a, a durable immune response? If if you take the vaccine and it peters out after a few months, um, you know it's not all that much good, is it? So. You know, there there are only so many shortcuts you could take, and that's why you have to be cautious about the timeline. Max Neeson, thank you so much for being with us, as always. Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us to talk about the vaccine and uh, the arguments that are already occurring over the distribution of those vaccines. Paul, I don't know right, how well, you're going to – I'm not sure how you figure that out. You know, it's just going to be interesting to see when there – hopefully there will be a vaccine – how it is distributed and, and boy, who goes first yeah. and, you well, know, it's just, I can't what even is, imagine it. What does fair mean when everyone yeah. thinks that fair is for them to get it first? Okay, moment of truth, Paul. Yes. Real moment of truth. How many times have you Googled the symptoms of COVID-19 as well as the transmission mechanisms, the, you know, uh, rate of contagion? You know what? Fortunately, I have not. I, you know, I'm just... Really? Yeah, I'm just, you know... Staying at home, you know, doing all the common sense stuff. And I think that's the best way to go. And I'm fairly comfortable with that. Definitely the best way to go. I cannot (laughs) confess to the same, but I like that. Well, first it was a trade dispute. Now it's finger pointing about uh, the coronavirus. But the U.S.-China trade and, and, and relationship has been anything but smooth under, under the Trump administration. Now we've got President Trump coming out recently saying he's looking at Chinese companies that trade on the Nasdaq and NYSC, but they don't follow U.S. accounting rules. He says he doesn't want to talk with Chinese President Xi. So the question remains is, where are we in terms of the U.S. and China in terms of global relationship? There's nobody better to ask that of than Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy joins us on the phone. Andy, thanks so much for joining us here. It seems like uh, President Trump is ratcheting up the rhetoric, the anti-China rhetoric. Is there a strategy here that you're following? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so look, this is not the first time, obviously, that we've heard uh, inflated, overheated rhetoric on China from President Trump. Um, you, you, you'll remember in, in August last year, I think it was, um, where out of the blue, he suddenly orders all U.S. companies to exit China and return to the United States. And, you know, companies at that time sort of scratched their heads and tried to figure out, you know, what he was talking In fact, it was more a sort of verbal explosion than a serious declaration of intent. Still less was it a strategy. Um, and I think you're seeing something of that here. I mean, obviously, at root, what he's trying to do is deflect blame for the coronavirus onto China. Uh, both countries uh, are playing this game. But the rhetoric this time, uh, I mean, I will say it, 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 is, it is even more overblown than usual. And the one thing that actually caught my eye was this comment on Xi Jinping. I mean, 
you know, he, he's been very careful um, uh, right from the beginning since he took office to separate all the bad things that were happening in the U.S.-China relationship for, uh, on the trade front and, and on the military front, security front, IP front, and so on, to separate all that from his own personal relationship with Xi Jinping. And he's been at pains to tell the world, you know, I have a great relationship. He's a terrific guy. He's my friend and all the rest of it. And he, he today, he, he's saying he's saying to Fox, you know, um, still, I have a great relationship with him, but I don't want to talk, I don't want to, talk to him. And, and it just seems to me that, that that is quite a significant step. It, it's now starting to, to, to look really personal. Andy, I'm struck by the increasing rhetoric by analysts who've watched this space for a long time saying that it's really getting close to a cold war between the U.S. and China. And I'm wondering how much this is due to the pandemic and concerns about the transparency from China. And how much does this have to do with just this general feeling of anger toward the way that China has handled trade and a host of other issues? Well, there's been a reset, obviously, in, in the United States um, view of China. I mean, China is now quite explicitly, um, you know, a competitor and an adversary. Um, and everything flows from that. Um, you know, coming into this pandemic, uh, you had real decoupling uh, taking place in areas of technology, in trade, in investment, in talent, the flow of people across borders. Um, and coronavirus um, has, 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 has added more poison to that well. And now you're starting, we, we talked earlier about, you know, uh, the latest uh, area of potential decoupling, which is in the financial sphere. And, and, you know, so you're hearing just yesterday, in fact, federal pension fund under pressure from, you know, the, the, the White House announced that it was postponing a decision on, you know, whether or not to, to uh, diversify into Chinese stocks. The White House is saying, why would Chi why should American pensioners be, you know, supporting Chinese companies that are competing against U.S. companies and potentially ripping off their, their IP? You know, um, discussion about, you know, for instance, uh, you know, whether, whether the U.S. should renege on its debt obligations to China. This is, this is sort of loose talk, but very, very dangerous loose talk. Andy, is there any sense that the medical community, at least, is working together on a global scale, U.S. and China, as it relates to this virus and potential remedies and vaccines? Or is that also uh, kind of, you know, on the back burner? Yeah, so you, you, you read about collaboration, and, in, and, and I'm sure that there is collaboration going on, um, you know, in, in certain areas. Um, but you also read about, you know, vaccine nationalism and, um, you know, China and the U.S. in a race to develop a vaccine. And, you know, uh, if, if China got it, would they make it available to the U.S. and, and vice versa? Um, so, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's an, an area of, of some collaboration, but, but also potentially of competition. Andy, you know, a lot of this has gotten wrapped up in, you know, how much is deflecting blame? How much did China hide? But taking a step back, how much is China really to blame here? I mean, can you give a sense of the legitimacy of the U.S.'s claims? Look, this, this whole issue about, you know, uh, where it came from. So, um, 
you know, the science says it, it, it came from, from bats and was passed to, uh, to humans through, through an animal. Uh, we, we, don't know, we don't know what kind of animal, and, and that's a question that, that demands urgent inquiry and answer, which is why it's so important, I think, to have an, a, a real independent international inquiry into, in, into what happened. But the, there is no evidence to support the Trump White House um, accusations that you know it came out of a, it came out of a lab, and and I think the White House has, has, has now sort of abandoned it. No, but talk about it was deliberate and so on. But but they say that they've been you know and just just real quick, we've got twenty seconds left. But they've been talking about just a lack of transparency and how that's really hampered uh, the ability to fight this pandemic. For sure, it has. China China stonewall. China has. Uh, stiff on the WHO and continues to deny access to WHO scientists, um, you know, who who are interested in figuring out where this the origin of uh, of, of of the virus. So there are legitimate complaints uh, about China and its lack of transparency. Certainly in the early part of the uh, the early stages of the of the outbreak, it's equally true that the Trump White House ignored uh, or you know did very little to prepare the United right. States for this for this uh, coming pandemic during yeah. the entire month of February. What happened then? Andy Brown, some legitimate questions and ones we will continue to ask through the weeks and months ahead. An editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. Until the past few days, a lot of people have been talking about the resiliency of U.S. equities and the contrast with that against an increasingly bleak outlook for the U.S. labor market. However, when we talk about equities, they are not all the same, and there's been a huge divergence between the mega caps, the big tech names, and everybody else. Joining us now, Tal Cohen, head of U.S. markets for NASDAQ in New York. Tal, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start there. What do you make of this growing bifurcation where the top performing stocks, the biggest stocks, which are actually the same, have continued to outperform while everything else actually gets left behind with a bigger and bigger gap. Well, thank you, Lisa, for having me today. And just to touch on what you mentioned in terms of the bifurcation, the markets are distinguishing between companies that they think are part of the solution, such as tech and biotech, versus those that are most vulnerable, like travel and hospitality. And we're not just seeing it in the day-to-day. We're seeing it in the inflows into the market. So, uh, for instance, the NASDAQ QQQ and NASDAQ 100, we've seen $8 billion of inflows over just the last two to three months. So investors are trying to understand what parts of the economy are vulnerable, what parts of the economy came into this crisis uh, on a position of strength, and what will leave on a position of strength. And then further, you're seeing a lot of unclear economic data such as the jobs report, which is historically bad. And people are trying to figure out, investors are trying to figure out whether that's a reflection of the long-term impact or is it, is it highlighting more of a temporary impact of the here and now. And then finally, on a day-to-day basis, you can wake up one morning and you can hear conflicting data on the longevity of this health crisis where some folks will come out and say it will last throughout the year. And then you can see news at the end of the day from a healthcare company talking about a potential vaccine or potential treatment. So I think the markets and investors are trying to make sense of all of that while understanding there are going to be different parts of the economy that will be impacted severely differently than others. 
So, Tal, I mean, some folks have been suggesting that we have, in fact, put in a bottom on this market and unlikely to retest the lows. How do you f- feel about that, given some of this economic data that we see, including today's jobless claims and what we're likely to see in terms of unemployment and, and declining earnings? We'll leave that to the experts who watch the markets more closely. From our perspective, I I would say that there's still a lot of unknown. We're still just looking to re-enter into into offices. We're talking about re-entry plans there. Uh, There's still talk about a second wave. There isn't clarity around the vaccine or treatments. And on a state-by-state basis here, at least in the U.S., you see very very different conditions throughout the U.S. So I think it's, it's still early to tell. And from a NASDAQ perspective, we just look at our own experience. We're still going through and trying to understand what it means to re-enter uh, our offices. But that being said, we're very comfortable working from home. So it will depend on how comfortable you are with the situation you're in now and how long you think you'll be in this situation. Tell, I'm wondering about your point with people being uh, somewhat discerning when it comes to which companies they bet on. What does that mean for indexed strategies, given the fact that everybody was going into passive investing and suddenly it really is a stock picker's market, particularly pick fang and nothing else? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things to note there. Is number one, you know, the Fed and government have taken actions that probably have helped certain sectors. And so it's just not the market forces at work. You have the Fed and government at work, and they've taken very strong and decisive actions in certain parts of the economy. So I think that's, that's a factor. The second one is, once again, when you're working from home and you're thinking about the impact of this crisis, for me personally, I'm using all these collaboration tools on a day-in, day-out basis that I might not have been using before. So those companies that enable work from home that enable the remote and virtual working environment, they're going to be winners. And those industries that clearly there isn't any clarity at this point in time as to when they're going to come back or how they're going to come back. And there's a debate as to, you know, what it looks like, what's the new new normal look like. So people, instead of just taking bets on individual companies, might feel more comfortable going into a sector ETF or thematic ETF. But to your point, with interest rates and everything else being where they are, people are also looking at and being more critical about how their stock selection process would work now. Tal, how's the uh, the NASDAQ market held up in terms of performance, in terms of kind of handling the order flow, given a lot of the volatility we've seen over the past couple months? Great question. So we've been, uh, almost all of us have been working from home for the, the better part of two months. We're 98% of our workforce at home. And we've been able to operate without interruption to our business and continue to serve our markets and our clients. And we've helped up really well. The, the markets have functioned really well. And I think we're comfortable as a company because we've gone through it. We're lucky in some ways that the financial industry had gone through 9-11 Hurricane Sandy and some other events that have provided us with an opportunity to ensure that we have the resiliency and the BCP plans to withstand something like this. So I think, you know, we look at it and we think we'll be able to function well and we'll likely be a fast follower as people return to the office. Tal, 20 seconds. Do you think a lot of people won't ever return to the office? I think it will be done on a voluntary basis. It will be done in ways and it behooves companies to collaborate and talk to their employees about what they're comfortable doing, and then that will tell us the answer. 
Tal, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your thoughts. Tal Cohen, head of U.S. markets for NASDAQ. Uh, NASDAQ, of course, based in uh, New York City. Uh, interestingly, so I think you know a lot of companies are really going to be rethinking this work-from-home situation given, I think, what most feel like is pretty decent productivity. Did you see the Connecticut governor's comments yesterday where he said that yeah. the Monday through Friday commute from Greenwich, Connecticut may be a thing of the past? Yeah, we'll exactly. It, it's interesting. You know, as a 30-year uh, commute on New Jersey Transit, that is a fascinating thing to, I'm sure to it think is. about here, you know, so as we think about that. So we'll have to see how this plays out over time. When we talk about reopening economies, a lot of it has to do not only with testing, but tracing. This raises a whole host of questions. Who will do the tracing? How will they do it? What kinds of personal privacy issues does this raise? And how organized is the United States? Not to mention who pays for it. Joining us now to answer all of these questions completely and fully is Tay Kim, <laughs> uh, technology columnist for no Bloomberg Opinion. No pressure or anything, Tay. Uh, let's get started with big tech and how they have offered to help track and trace everybody in order to prevent the spread of the uh, of the uh, coronavirus? So on April 10th, about a month ago, Apple and Google announced this unprecedented joint effort. I mean, they never really worked together like this before to develop smartphone technology to do contact tracing, basically alerting users if they've been in the proximity of an infected person so they can get tested and self-quarantine. Um, the crux of my column was a lot of countries in Europe have adopted the Google-Apple proposal and plan. Germany, Italy, Austria, even the United Kingdom is considering it. And I'm a little worried that the U.S. is not doing anything on a national basis. Um, President Trump, days after it was first announced, it it looked great, but he needed to talk to all these experts and he's going to make a decision in the ensuing weeks. And it's been about four weeks and we haven't heard anything from the American government. So I'm worried that the U.S., is not actively working on this while all these European countries and countries around the world are, you know, basically accepting this great proposal that Apple and Google are presenting and the U.S. doesn't seem to have its act together. So, Tay, do I even need the U.S. approval? Don't I just download it from my, you know, Apple, you know, apps like any other app? Uh, Unfortunately, we do. Um, Apple and Google's plan, they don't actually create the app. They say one app per country, a public health authority needs to create the app to use their software and technology. And for it to work, it really has to be a national app because everyone has to get involved. Uh, we have to have this shared specific duty to do it. Um, it looks like in the U.S. we have like Utah's making an app, North Dakota. I mean, a state-by-state thing is not going to work. We need the whole country to get behind it. And for that to be effective, we need the president we need the federal government to be behind it and basically say, this is a great idea. Uh, let's have the CDC or the NIH put out an app so everyone can use it. But I just don't see that happening here. And I'm very worried that we're not going to use this effective tool um, to really, we, we need to fight this virus with every tool we have. Um, it's a public health crisis and we're not doing it. So, Tay, what's the main uh, opposition to this? Is it a is it a security issue, uh, an independence issue, or is it a lack of organization issue? I think a lot of it is just um, people are really worried about kind of health and privacy. Big technology companies, their reputation has been getting hit the last few years, especially after the whole Facebook stuff a couple of years ago with Cambridge Analytica. And, I mean, this is just me postulating, but I, I just fear that 
politicians and officials are so worried about the political risk of partnering with Silicon Valley because they have this reputation. Um, they don't want to do it. And the issue is this Apple-Google plan is actually a really good plan. They vigorously designed it to protect um, consumer privacy. All identities are protected. They don't do physical location tracking at all. It's not GPS based on this Bluetooth short range technology. It works. It's smartly engineered. It's greatly designed, and it seems like we're ignoring it. All right. So, Tay, I'm still confused a little bit. Who is creating, who has created this app? Is it, is it the Apple-Google consortium, or is it the U.S. government? And what's the role of these tech companies? So, what Apple and Google is doing is they're um, installing, they're going to create, at the middle of this month, the software API that allows public health authorities uh, to create apps that can do the contact tracing. So Apple, is, Apple and Google are kind of uh, creating the programming APIs okay. to let um, a public health authority uh, create an app. So Apple and Google aren't creating the app. They're kind of doing the groundwork infrastructure software f to let countries develop their own apps that can do okay. the contact tracing. Okay, interesting. We'll have to see how this plays out. It's interesting because uh, we've seen the European countries generally be more apprehensive about, uh, you know, giving out personal information and, you know, whether it's related to advertising or anything. So it's interesting to see that they are perhaps out in front relative to the U.S. Take hey, Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. I mean, I think clearly, Lisa, as you listen to Governor Cuomo and others talk about it, the next big step in combating the virus is, you know, kind of tracking and tracing, tra testing and tracing, testing and tracing. Yeah. And the question is, how are they going to do that? I know that in New York City, they're hiring a whole host of people to help do that. The question is, how can you employ technology to help do that? I know that in South Korea, for example, you have to register yourself right away when you get off and then you you get tracked and traced and the same kind of things have happened across Asia. I'm just wondering, what's the alternative? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, again, given the importance of kind of, you know, tracing is going to be to really combating this and, and, and confronting it and, and beating it back, I think that's going to have to happen to some extent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.